Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcasts, a show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. Now, I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. It's, of course, another X-Men X Wednesday, and we're going to take a look at a number of new X-Men titles a little bit later on this episode. But first things first, I have an amazing guest with me, and I could not wait to get this co-host in here to talk about this with me. Hey, it's me. It's Nathan. Ha 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 ha. You can find me online at Dazzler AOA, where I'll be talking about like how Patches just logan in wrestling kpa because that's what it is oh my god no no it really is it really it is so perfectly over the top in every way i love and so okay i have this not so secret agenda to maybe turn this <laughs> show into e is for electra and so uh it's happening and so we've covered a bunch of the electra red white and blood stories and we've got some plans to cover some more stuff in the future but like so when i opened this and i read this story and I saw that there was an opportunity to discuss a story from Electra, Red, White, and Blood number two that was not just going to feature Patch, but was by Peter David and Greg Land with Jay Liston on inks and Frank Darmada on colors. Cut and run. I, I knew this had to be with, with you, Nathan. So the first thing I need to do before anything else, I need you to download your Electra into me. Tell me Whoa. who is your Electra, your favorite version of her, your like... What is your Electra story? Okay, so my Electra story is probably nobody else's Electra story. I really fell in love with Electra in Mutant X. That's a great alternate universe version. I am so here for it. Yeah, I am like mainly X-Men centric for the longest time. I was really into like crazy 80, 90s Avengers, but Electra really didn't feature much in that either. But like you would always get some really nice Electra stories in Wolverine showing up. But like this Mutant X version of Electra as like the fucking nanny of Alex and Madeline's son is just like the craziest version of Electra to me because it's like like I would have never saw her as like somebody's nanny first off I mean like come on really like that's just like what but like it works so well and like the little like weird like flirtation shift she had with Alex like man Alex really has gotten some really amazing women in his life Alex definitely operates in a higher end class of women than I necessarily think Alex outward expresses like every now and then I'll see that this one guy dates all of these amazing Hollywood starlets and I just have to wonder like what is it he's got going on and you know Heather Locklear was once asked why she was with David Spade for so long and she said because he's funny and he's got a huge dick <laughs> and I have to assume that Alex is at least very funny and you know <laughs> I'm gonna defend your love of this even further because she's the nanny like how much can you reduce the capacity of a woman to the mother figure? And I was like, I want you to take a step back and I want you to think about the nannies of the Marvel Universe. And I want you to tell me again that it's a downgrade to be a nanny in the Marvel Universe. You've got Ship, 
You've got Agatha Harkness. I know. I mean, Squirrel Girl, too. Like, Squirrel Girl took on Thanos. Like, come on. I'm with you. I do think that Elektra in that run was super fantastic, and I really loved her there. Have you been super connected to the Zdarsky run and era? Have you been watching from afar? And how do you feel about Elektra's current operations in the Marvel Universe as someone a bit more in the spotlight? Much to the chagrin of Nico, I am not a huge Daredevil fan. But I do love Elektra, and I did start reading Daredevil when Elektra took over the mantle. I love the way that she's really tried to operate within the molds of still being Elektra, but also following the rules that Matt had set aside for Daredevil. Like, uh, uh, this current miniseries that she's got, Daredevil Woman Without Fear, is mm. just amazing and beautiful, and like, it kind of like makes me want to see her and Matt like be a little bit more like they are kind of, and like, you know, maybe finally somehow get it together and actually be together. And, you know, I think one of the things that's so complicated about when we talk about Elektra is she operated in the shadows for so many years and now she's in this prime and front and center position and, you know, I always had issues with that in general. I thought that she was a character best suited to the shadows and so here we are shining this massive light on her throughout the Marvel Universe. Now, there have been six stories throughout the first two issues of Elektra Black, White, and Blood and I have to say our coverage of one of them, Nathan, actually referenced your earlier coverage of the vampire nation in the marvel universe i love that story that was like amazing and there were like some of the hottest fucking pages in i've ever seen of electra being drawn like oh that was perfect would you ever believe that was bagley i couldn't believe the credit i was so amazed and impressed yeah that was good that was a really good story <laughs> we're here to talk about a story that i also found very good and the first thing that makes this a tricky story is the creative credits mm -hmm. it is really hard to talk about a story by either of these two main creators without acknowledging that people have some very valid criticisms of both creators but yet there are so many stories by both creators in the realm of the x-men that means so much to so many people they are names that do tend to bring up strong feelings on one side or the other the writer obviously has made some blunders in speech especially the Romani incident I find it myself coloring some of my views of his past work I know though growing up even in two franchises I really love like the Star Trek novels that that writer has written Strike Zone was like the first book I ever remember reading from Star Trek Generation and like loving like so like I have some built-in nostalgic love for the writer but some of his controversial actions and even looking back at some of the things that he's written do color my perception of that nostalgia. The artist, there's also a lot of controversy. I think the artist has grown in a way. I think in this particular story, it doesn't come across as much of tracing porn stories as some things in the past usually have. And I'm always here for that growth. You know, I, it's hard to forgive the star crotch look for Dazzler, you know, that the artist came up with, but we'll move on. <laughs> and, you know, I really love that you brought up that Greg Land has grown a lot because I do really agree. It's fascinating because some of the problems with Peter David's work is that he sat on the front lines of progress as a an ally. And what that often means is he told stories that did not age well. Especially the X-Factor Investigations run, there was a lot of stuff that was really progressive and he was the only one trying to tell those stories at the time. Like the whole Richter and Shatterstar thing. He 
I think he really tried his best and he really was trying to push forward a good agenda. When you look at it now, there's a lot of things that maybe aren't as nuanced as we would like them to be. This story does not feel new for Peter mm. David. Peter David often uses characters with a a noble idea in mind. While he knows that Electra is a very questionable figure, he has her come in to protect a pregnant woman. How did you feel about seeing Electra working for Logan to protect somebody from Madripoor? Anytime you can bring a patch into a story, first off, like, is Electra just playing along with Patch? Like, does she just let Logan think that she can't even tell that Logan is Patch? It's literally like Logan and wrestling cafe because, like, you cannot break the character on it. I think you're just always like, just playing along with Logan. <laughs> Anytime you can bring Patch into a story like that and have him serve as the driving force and it not be ridiculous, I love. It really came across really authentic, knowing that the history between these characters, it kind of almost had me wanting them to, like, you know, like, maybe go make a baby that's gonna grow up to be, like, wild thing. But, you know, that's just me. It's not just you, because <laughs> I have this whole thing that one day I'm gonna do an MC2 podcast and I'm gonna cover every issue of Spider-Girl, get to live out my teenage size change transformations through J2, and <laughs> my wild thing is the perfect girlfriend teenage mentality. So, with you, a million percent. And I'm here for, like, future Jubilee leading the X-People and then becoming an Avenger. One of the things that a number of us that have discussed Elektra on this show in the last couple of months, whether it's through Devil's Reign X-Men or through any of the Elektra one-shots we've talked about, it does seem like Marvel is trying to make her the new Wolverine. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I really love about Elektra as a character. She's the perfect morally gray character. I'd love to see her team up with Karma because, like, Karma's got the same kind of morally gray zone there. Elektra, she's got the assassin part but she does have a really strong moral core and like she knows what's right and wrong and when she can do the right thing she does and I very much agree with your assessment not just for Electra in general but specifically that's one of the things I loved about this story now one of the things that I appreciate about Electra is we don't have a lot of definitively able to fight with the boys female characters at Marvel who aren't frequently marked by some transformational aspect that constantly reminds you of their femininity which I love I think that's so important that when we see how Carol Danvers can fight with any of the galactic people she's we're still reminded that she had to work so hard to be taken seriously as a member of the military and how hard it was for her to be taken seriously as a member of the Avengers and let's be honest we still make a lot of moms drink wine jokes female alcoholism is not taken seriously the way male alcoholism uh, is taken no. there's that moment where she and Patch are talking where that could just be Patch and Punisher. Yeah, I do love that energy for Electra, and like I think if Electra had been created in a more of a modern era, like Electra really could code well as like a good like non-binary character. Electra's got that energy of being masculine and feminine. I couldn't agree more, truly. You know, when I think of Elektra, I think that she embodies a lot of duality. There's a lot of layers to the character, and there's never been a long-term writer on Elektra that is not male, yeah. right? And the Senti's run never once used Elektra in a meaningful way, because Elektra was part of it. once again, check out this fucking phrase, part of a gentleman's agreement mm. between Frank Miller and Ralph Macchio not to use her outside of 
of Frank Miller's consent. So only Miller got to use her between his run and the point at which she was reintroduced to Daredevil canon and Fall from Grace in the 320s. Mm. So yeah, right? So she couldn't be used by anybody for like 12 years. So there have been a lot of men who have touched Electra, but it would truly take either a a female or non-binary perspective to be the person to introduce a non-female or non-binary element into Electra. If it could be done by the right hand, it's so there. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. In this story, you see the moments where she embodies the fierce warrior, but there's some softer moments where Electra's like, no, you know, get out of the country. Like, I'm going to take credit for this death just so you don't have to worry about it. That's just so much caring. You know, it all works. And there's something so cut and dry about Electra that I think is fascinating. Why would she assume that this woman's never had sex with another person before? (laughs) Yeah. That maybe said to me something about the functionality of the way Electra sees sex versus love. Perhaps Electra would only imagine choosing to create life with Matthew, right? Because that's that's what it is, and I will never back down on this. <laughs> I'm glad Karen Page is dead, so I don't ever have to wonder who I would prefer Matt with. This makes my life much easier. I'm going to assume you've read Devil's Reign X-Men. Yes. I actually love Dugan's Electra in Savage Avengers, mm-hmm. but Dugan's Electra in Devil's Reign X-Men leaves me a little cold. Yeah, I get that. Dugan was just really focused on the characters having fun, and I think his Electra shone through in that way. I think he's trying to tell a different story with Electra in Devil's Reign X-Men that he can't use the character in that same way, and it, it's always weird when writers change the voice of the characters that they use, especially, like, he used Electra a lot in Savage Avengers. It's not like she just showed up in one issue and she really didn't have like a set voice. He used her a lot. She wasn't just Dazzler on the cover of Devil's Reign <laughs> X-Men number two. <laughs> oh my god, don't make me cry again. <laughs> and yeah, I do have to say, Greg Land's patch here is like the fucking sexiest patch I've ever seen. I want to bang every dude this guy draws every time. What is it? You know, we, we were always like, you know, don't sexualize the ladies, but if we can, right under that, just a little asterisk that says, but sexualize the guys that are into it, right? Because I knew that no one would appreciate it with me the way you did. So I just want to thank you for talking about this story with me and bringing some electrifying coverage over here to X-Men X Wednesdays. Up next, we hope you guys enjoy our coverage of Devil's Reign X-Men number two, which either continues these awesome Electra vibes or is a justification for the inclusion of so much Electra in this show lately. But either way, we hope you guys enjoy what you hear. And if you guys like what you hear, you might even like what you see. So don't forget to give us a follow over on Twitter at X's for podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Access for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and girl bosses week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm TK, and you can find me covering up my crimes on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And I'm Steven, aka The Good Witch, and you can find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star Group. And I'm Jonah, you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah. that's P-E-A-K, and we hope you survive this experience 
experience, just like we hope Emma will survive this giant PR stunt. <laughs> and today we are talking about Devil's Reign X-Men 2, written by Jerry Duggan, art by Phil Noto, letters by VCs Clayton Cowles, and designed by Tom Muller, with the cover by Phil Noto as well. What a fun follow-up to Emma's previous hijinks and journey, sort of starting to wonder how many more skeletons she has in her closet for us to see. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. I I could read just an entire ongoing series of this. Associating Emma with the 80s, you know, if you're a certain age, you really do associate Emma with the 80s. And getting flashbacks to that now is always such a treat. This really updated it in a way that was, you know, both nostalgia and with the Phil Noto art, such kind of a love letter to Emma's style and journey. Absolutely. Obviously, you put Emma in any title and I'm guaranteed to at least read it or look into it. There are so many beautiful roles that Emma gets to fill that a lot of writers have put her in where I really enjoy seeing her. I love seeing her as a teacher and a mentor. I love seeing her as a leader. I love seeing her as our girl boss. Girl boss gatekeeping gaslight. That's Emma's entire motif. (laughs) Those are her three mutant powers. Those are exactly her three mutant powers. The the three G's. And I love to see her in those all those different roles. So definitely was really excited to not only see what the plot of this title is supposed to be about, but like, I love that it's Emma in roles that I think she's the character is really comfortable in and seeing her in it just gets me all excited. Yes. Emma's role in the post-Morrison and pre-Hickman era was really about making her a core character that was synonymous with the X-Men and fleshing out the character beats that had, had been provided for her when she started to turn good in the early 90s. But for diehard Emma fans, there's always a sense that the role she played as the woman behind Cyclops's power was somewhat beneath her. And in the Krakoan era, we've watched Emma rise up to new levels of leadership and influence, but also character complexity. And we saw this primarily in the Duggan stories in Marauders and Cable. After nearly three years of this expansion of character, Devil's Reign represents a moment to pause and breathe and remember that despite being an absolute fucking queen, Emma is human. She was young and lacking in cloud at one point. And how are you all feeling about this return to Emma's past, particularly as it pertains to a time when her status was so different from the Emma we know now? So one thing that I think is consistent about Emma's characterization is that in Destiny Child be playing on the background, Emma is a survivor. Emma will find a way yes. and, and a certain way. She's kind of like a cockroach. You can't really like, you can even behead her and she'll still find a way to survive. Emma truly will do whatever it takes to self-preserve and make sure that she is not only ahead, whatever scenario it might be, but at least not losing. Emma always makes sure that she is a couple of chess moves ahead. And it's something that I liken to, there is a classic X-Men story talking about Emma and her power struggle against Shaw and both of them trying to make moves in order to gain full control of the Hellfire Club at that point in time. So it is something that I always love about Emma is that she is strategic and constantly has plans in place. So seeing her in a situation where she has to a little bit think on her toes because she understands the ramifications of not only who she's working with, but the consequences of working with those individuals, I really enjoy and appreciate seeing her kind of have to do what she needs to do in order to protect and help another woman. I don't know how much interaction they've had previously, but seeing Emma and Electra interact in such a beautiful way, I was just so enamored and happy. I absolutely agree. I am really happy you talked 
about the fact that she was more on her toes because she didn't have time to really formulate a plan. Looking at the flashbacks previous to where Electra comes in, you know, you could tell she she had a plan for each of those interactions. And then here she's thrown in a situation where she needs to act kind of immediately. It was just so beautifully told. I am very obsessed with their dynamic, Electra and Emma. The good witch, bad witch thing, just it has spoken to me so much. I loved seeing them. And walking down the street, just like her Emma in her Hellfire getup and Electra in her, you know, in her red assassin's gear. It just all worked. I loved seeing this this aesthetic. And yes, I do associate her with the 80s. So that was just uh, this was just such a breath of fresh air for me. And I think that Duggan really gets her like a like unlike a lot of other writers. Yeah, and I think Noto really understands little touches, you know, the way that he makes her face look different in the 80s and he's able to age her up when it's present time. I was so impressed with that because when we start with her in the boardroom, one thing he does that like it definitely works, but it irks me ever so slightly. He did this with Esme too. He puts the adult women in like adult lady clothes, like Chico's at the mall type like blouses. (laughs) He really does do that. You're absolutely right. I actually had that thought when she walked out in in the Red Queen's outfit. Yeah. And you saw in the future with Esme when she's older, she's got like the mom haircut and, you know, she's in like a blouse and tucked into some slacks. Like you're like, oh, Esme is now an adult. Of course, this fashion pains me a little bit, but I very much know that this is where we are now. And by the same token, when he flashes back to the 80s, the way that he streamlines both of their looks to something that is the sort of embodiment of what we associate them with, you know, the the fur-lined cape and Electra, just the very sleek assassin's garb, it puts us right into the mood that we need to be in to see these characters as they were in that time. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. The aesthetic was just so on point. And his art just worked for this so so beautifully. And Jonah, you pointed out that Emma and Electra are two characters that we've seen have relatively little interaction. But as soon as you see them on page together, it, it makes so much sense. They've got a very similar type of backstory. They're both daughters of privilege. They're both constantly doing sort of the push and pull of heroics and villainy. And because they're both characters that we know have an established presence in the criminal underworld, there's a degree to which the idea of them having a backstory makes so much sense. And it feels like this is not all of it by any means. But this is a story that is, I mean, especially just because of the event, obviously it makes sense to tell. Is this a relationship that you would want to see expanded on in the past or in the future? For me, it absolutely is. I actually have it written in my notes that this just kind of works, and I want to see them in the modern era. I hope that this isn't relegated to this this one flashback, because as much as I love the you know the look of of their older outfits, I would love to see their you know their their new looks, their their new personas, you know, on panel together, working together again, because I think that that would be. It 
would be really beautiful to see that they've made maybe maintained like an actual relationship of some sort i absolutely concur i would love to see emma's you know and electra's role and if their dynamic is similar now that electra is currently handling the mantle of daredevil and what that means electra has gone through so many different things that i'm sure emma is very well aware of with her connections in the underground whether it's her connections in the underground overground high up above emma's got connections and ears <laughs> everywhere so i really would love to know how their dynamic has shifted throughout the years something i love that is a constant theme that i think keep going back for emma is that emma's been secretly helping women for years upon years yes <laughs> yeah. yes Emma is somebody that really understands how to play the game, how to work power, and understands that Emma's ultimate goal is obviously a position of authority and power, but she also understands how to get there and what the games and mind shenanigans she has to play in order to obtain said power for herself. But I love that Emma is, this is now three, three women, you know, two two women and one girl that she's helped in situations and understands like, nope, okay, put everything aside. I have to help these people. And that is something that I love that as we continue with Emma throughout years and upon years of characterization I think there's a lot more understanding that she's not explicitly evil there's plenty of things that she's done that's been pretty shitty and pretty evil and been like Emma you really do need to stop but I think as we got get a lot more detail I think there's a lot more trying to be understanding that Emma just tends to be a little more selfish as opposed to evil but also understands when she needs to put others above herself I do not believe that you should always agree or like every single decision that your fave makes because again no is infallible and i just feel like you know emma is one of those characters where she is so complex and a lot of people have actually had uh some issues with the fact that you know we're going back and we're inserting these you know instances into her backstory but the thing about that is is that back then when she was in the hellfire club she was a two-dimensional villain you know we've talked about that on this podcast before she really was just written to be evil a foil for Xavier. There was not much depth there whatsoever. You know, so when a character comes, you know, up in prominence and popularity, it's just so important that you add nuance to her. You go back, you add that depth. And this is what we're doing here. You know, this is what Duggan has actually been doing, you know, for a majority of his time on the X-Books that I've been able to tell is, is adding all of this, you know, new backstory that we haven't seen before where you know she was a frigid bitch but she was a frigid bitch who still did the right thing sometimes so it just adds so much complexity to her back in the day especially when the hellions came up we started to see a side of emma that was invested in helping mutant children not just survive but thrive a lot of the terrible things that she did back then and the way that she was were about creating the next generation stronger and and whether or not you agree or disagree with what she did, that was a huge part of who she became Like as she would go on to lead Generation X and then in Morrison's run at the Xavier School. like She has been about the children for a while. And I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that that didn't just happen overnight You know, the first time she appeared with the Hellions. There is a part of her that has probably always been very invested in that and knew when it was time to put aside whatever she was doing, you know, not for just her own pleasure or her own betterment, but her own betterment so that she could then pass that on to others. And this to me looks like a snapshot of an Emma that doesn't have children to take care of yet, doesn't have this sort of 
system in place by which she's going to make the next generation stronger, but it's still something that she is probably thinking about and wanting to move towards. And we see, you know, just a, a slice of that in how she helps this girl. At the same time, we're seeing her, you know, just do crimes for Fisk, you know, just go in and use Sue Storm's <laughs> image to take out a loan and go in and mentally suggest that Jennifer Walters screw up a case and criminally have drinks with Iron Man. We will not be talking about that as a connection to her and Iron Man marrying. Um, oh, oh my gosh. I'm I'm even more appalled that we mentioned it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think this is a very much like proto-Emma's deal. You know, we see her doing the bad stuff, but we see that it's for a greater reason than just whatever she wants to do. This is what she has to do, not just to survive, but to get to the next steps that we already know are in her past. Something that I do love is that I love that a lot of writers are trying to build these connections with Emma, with characters from past X-Men titles, but also other women who have been juggernauts within the comics and titles and what they've done for within the universe. I don't think people have had a problem from what we've talked about it, but in Trial of Magneto, it's implied that Emma and Janet have a strong relationship, and that's something that I would love to also see explored more, especially back in the past and how yes. they talk about things. But it's another thing that just kind of makes sense. I think what a lot of writers are trying to do is just tell stories about the past, but that also make conceivable sense. I can buy Emma and Janet being friends and talking about things, especially because Emma is a socialite who's into fashion. Janet Van Dyne is a fashion designer. There's a lot of leeway and carryover that they can talk about. And it also wouldn't behoove me that to find out that certain members of the Avengers were members of the Hellfire Club because at its core before what it was you know obviously we didn't know what it was behind the scenes but it was just a rich social gathering they talk about all the time that Betsy and Warren's parents were members of the Hellfire Club wouldn't surprise me to see other rich socialite characters throughout Marvel's history have interactions or histories with Emma so like I think that makes a lot of sense especially like the idea of her and Janet and when you think about their not their missions but their personalities they're not I would never want to see an issue where you know back in the day they were fighting crime together that would be ridiculous but right. the idea that they like saw each other at Bergdorf's or like Emma commissioned custom yes. decor would be absolutely awesome at the same time like I mentioned that Electra and Emma have very similar backstories they're both from a lot of wealth I really liked that this wasn't about that this wasn't them coming together and being like man our dads suck but we are loaded it was them at this time when they had both moved away from their families in their past and were doing what they felt they had to do now to take care of themselves and to address the literal evils that they were seeing in the world. You know, one of the things I love about this is that there is almost no like, let's use our sexuality to get out right. of this situation. There are two women who happen to be women, but nothing about this is like, um, you know, let's use our feminine wiles or anything like that, which I love and is really important. The only thing it made me think about when I was kind of tying it all together is how great it would have been if a woman could have written this interaction between the two of them. Not that it always needs to be a woman, but you know, still we see too few women writers in comics and too few female characters on the page. I'm always happy when we can see that being written by 
a woman. I think that's a really great point, personally. Oh, absolutely. And now that you've talked about it, I love the idea of Emma and Janet running into each other, you know, in Bergdorf's. I love the idea of Emma, who is, you know, she is essentially a fashion icon within the, the greater Marvel universe. You know, Janet using her as a model or, you, you know, asking Emma to wear one of her designs out because she knows it'll get attention. Or Electra, you know, going out to <laughs> brunch or dinner with Natasha. Maybe Natasha and Emma because now they've also worked together. So it's like... <laughs> <laughs> They're the like, moral ambiguity brunch club. They get shit faced on mimosas and talk about all the times they maybe almost killed somebody. Something that we've talked about in a previous room that some of what we love about the X Men is the you know the slice of life. We like hearing about the drama. We like seeing them interplay with each other. But I think what this story is doing so well is helping with a larger world building. Something that I find often when reading these Marvel titles, and there are so many characters, there are so many people telling their stories through Marvel uh, Earth Six One Six. There are so many different things that are going on that I feel like there are times where so many stories feel isolated from one another, even though the majority of these Marvel stories are happening in New York in this very small fucking borough of Manhattan that is not as big as people think it is, especially Thank the you. series. But what I, I love when you have characters interact from different titles, because at least it helps bridge this world building that all of these characters are connected, because at the end of the day, they are. They're all characters within these Marvel stories, and they're all characters in these comic books. But I like and love when we see characters from different titles interact in ways that feel organic and natural that helps bridge their not only their understanding and interplayativity to create these slice of life moments but just the, the world at large i like knowing okay these characters are interactive in a way that seems plausible and organic that's an interesting story another point i want to give to jerry and the other and the storytellers and the creative team for this is that this doesn't feel forced this feels like a very natural story that could have and it does feel like it happened in the past yeah i yeah. think we talk about I talk all the time about slice of life I think what you're talking about and I like the world world building is a story that is not just slice of life it's not the girls out for brunch but it's also not a like classic team up where it's really interwoven into you know like it's not like electric came into marauders and had a three issue arc this is a really specific mission but it's very low key it is not so much much about the action it is about the world building and yeah. what it gives for us is really plausible rich history between two characters that we can completely imagine in a way that is active and is contributing to a story but is not you know a full-blown event in and of itself absolutely also i would really love to talk about the spider-man interaction yeah what did you guys think about that i was really the first thing I started thinking about was like you know Emma's not really much older than Peter here she always has this air of being the adult in the room and being the queen but this is a younger Emma for sure and if she is notably older than Peter she's significantly younger than present day Emma where Peter has not aged in the same way he has always kind of stayed boyish even as he has you know he has actually aged 
aged. He's always had sort of a boyish mentality. But for Emma, we're seeing an Emma that is notably younger. And so they are closer to peers in this moment than I think they are in the present. And yet she looks at him and has this moment where she says, you were just a boy and is so moved by what he does and what his past is. And the the first thing I thought was like, if only Peter could also see into her head and understand what she is going through and has gone through to survive and to build what at this point is what little clout that she has. But it really was, you know, a beautiful moment. That was that was very lovely. I got like emotional. <laughs> it's a really like an emotional beat. Completely unsurprising. Like, of course, she saw a young hero show up and help and saw what makes him do that and was touched by it. That's her whole deal. But the way that it was rendered, it just it put you in an emotion that for Emma, we often just take for granted because she says so often that it's about the kids. Right. I, it really spoke to the heart of who she is, you know, and, and it goes it, it's also a testament to Peter himself because everyone loves Peter, you know, and this this to me further proves that you'd have to be a member of the Sinister Six to not like Peter Parker. And I just, oh, I loved it so much. And I love that she she did learn who she is and she's kept that secret. You know, of course, this is also before OMD. This is before One More Day. So it's mo- more than likely that she did forget along with everyone else. But I believe they've interacted afterwards. And I think, I, let's face it, she knows who he is again. So, but and I she would did love, for a long time. Right. She really did for a long time. And I would love, love for them to have more interaction I love that she called him to help, you know, even if he was just the closest person swinging by. <laughs> well, something I love about Peter's introduction here is that this gives a very clear point in history of where this is meant to be happening in Marvel yes. Universe, because Peter's in his symbiote costume, the, the famous yes. Black Spider-Man. And we, so we know this happens after the events of the first Secret Wars, which I find interesting. But that also means this takes place after everything involving the Dark Phoenix. This is after what was Emma's shining moment and her like her introduction to us that takes place after Emma herself is in this weird point because the Hellfire Club has basically just been defeated and is dissolved because most of their members are either just out of commission something wrong would happen but like her entire plan she was basically the owned by her rival who who will she doesn't know is her rival but has been her rival for a very long time Spider-Man here helps give us a clear point of when this is supposed to happen and what Emma could be going through after we know what certain events have already transpired I love the use of Peter here because obviously I love Spider-Man I love Peter but you bring up their ages at that point spider-man's been spider-man for so long and i don't well i don't know the exact amount of time that transpired from him first putting on the costume to him obtaining the symbiote suit i imagine he's got to be a little bit older yeah i I would say now he's probably and at the with the symbiote on he's 18 to 20 yes a hundred percent i believed him to be 18 with emma being around 21 here i'd even i would even be uh say that emma could be a little bit older too because i like even if she was around somewhere about 25 but yeah i was thinking like 25 yeah See, that's the thing. I could see that as well. I just know that Lubdell stated her to be 25 in Gen X. So, but again, the t- sliding time scale, it's different and it changes. So she very well just could be 25 here. It's true. And I always put Emma older because I think she should be older. I, I like her to be around a early to mid 30s. I think even at this point, Cyclops should be late 30s. Like, especially after all this time, I feel like the 05 should be the youngest mid 30s. 30s, but I really feel like at this point they're in their late 30s and Emma is like five years older than them. I mean, listen, 
43 is like the new 28. So exactly. I'll accept. Exactly. She's going to be looking hot forever. So anyway, yeah, like I personally read her as being like 25, 27 in this. Now what I'm thinking about is Emma having to be somewhere in her mid to late 30s because I, I need her like wine drunk and the cuckoos are there. And she says something like she th- just even say she just thinks it out of <laughs> something out of pocket. And obviously they hear it. And she goes, sorry, girls, mommy's, mommy's not drunk. She just likes to have fun. And also, (laughs) let's let's face it, you know that with all of the resources on Krakoa, she is going to eternally be, like, at the age that we see her now. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, not that comic book characters don't already do that, but at least we have an explanation for most of them now. (laughs) Yes, to build off what you were talking about, TK, Peter being here is such an interesting moment, because I think this this is a point of adding what is later more defining Emma characterization to a point in her past to help bridge that again none of none of where emma comes from today is really supposed to be out of nowhere a lot of good character development is showing steady change and development over time and i think having this moment here really helps add to the narrative that emma when seeing a younger individual and having so much pain she like kind of like all of her defenses come down for a little bit and i think peter's a really great character to use that for because peter is so young and peter's put the heroic burden on himself for so many years at such a young age that like Emma fully understands and I also love the notion that Emma knew it was Peter Parker and still didn't tell anybody right (laughs) you got your own secrets again this larger world building and additions that help bridge all of these characters together and help create these connections that whether they transfer to the modern day or not that doesn't really matter it's at least helping like okay this is where Spider-Man was in this moment and it's fully plausible that Spider-Man was out on parole eating and if he's the only person there to help you know he's the only person there to help yeah absolutely which by the way i feel so bad for him that he had to throw out that burger (laughs) i was just looking at that now and it's making my mouth water so unfair (laughs) so at one point we knew that this book was titled devil's reign marauders so when i heard that it was changing over to devil's reign x-men my first thought was like oh this is because duggan's x-men are based in new york and with everything going on in devil's reign this is going to be a huge problem for those core x-men who we've been seeing go into all of the big Marvel events like that's the team who they send in for Death of Doctor Strange so of course we had to change this from Devil's Reign Marauders to Devil's Reign X-Men and while we did see them in the previous issue this is clearly not a flagship X-Men story so I'm wondering how you guys see the function of this book for the Krakoa group as a tie-in to the broader Marvel Universe part of the name change I think is actually a little bit smarter as well is because we already know the X-Men themselves are having some um, friction with Mayor Fisk, who is kind of trying to assert his own dominance and power over things, and we see this struggle with them in already. We saw it in an X-Men issue. So I think the name change really does help to help bridge that, like, okay, the entire collective X-Men are having a problem with Fisk and what that means, as well as previous characters' uh, dealings with his shady undergroundness before he became mayor but i think mm, i don't know if this should be a larger problem from kokoa or if this should more stick to being a emma centralized story with certain characters coming in and out whether see fit for the plot i don't know if we really need all of kokoa going against
against New York specifically, because I don't know, A, if New York would win, but B, what Wilson would get out of it that makes him look better. Because for right now, I don't see the, I don't see it working well for his optics as mayor for going against the X-Men. I, I, don't, I don't see that being a smart political move for him, but I'm more so seeing of him exerting his role in power that he used to have over Emma and kind of dealing with that. I think that's a much more fascinating story to keep it centralized between these three characters of Emma, Electra, and Wilson that I really don't, I don't even, I don't really want or need all of the X-Men to be involved in this. Yeah, I'm with you on that, Jonah. I actually do think the name change was much smarter because Marauders, as as prominent as Emma was and as in, integral, you know, as her story was in Marauders, you know, Emma is, to me, just so much more intrinsically tied to the actual X-Men themselves at this point. And because of who Emma is, you can bring in, you know, a character or two here and there from from all over the X-Verse. So she being this, her being the centralized character uh, featured in the story still works and still makes sense for the title. I am absolutely convinced that a ongoing Emma Frost series really can work. So, so I'm I'm going to always pray for that. But I I do love that this, this is the, the story we're getting. She is who we're seeing. This development is is exactly like what's needed. You know, I I think that her interaction with Fisk is just the most motivating for me to keep reading. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think, Jonah, something that you said and something we were talking about in the X-Men number eight recording previously was, you know, we talk about the Krakoans now more than we, t- you know, we used to, when we said X-Men, while sometimes we were referring to the team, generally we meant people associated with the X-Men. Like when you talk about like what's going on in the X-Men, you could often be talking about, you know, what Havoc, what Cyclops and Havoc were interacting about um, or, you know, where X-Force was in the mix. Like X-Men has a very broad definition. And in the Krakoan age, it seems like there's a constant questioning of what it means to be an X-Man. You know, the idea that Scott Summers put forth that there needed to be an X-Men team again to sort of distinguish them from the nation of Krakoa. And calling this book Devil's Reign X-Men is an interesting pushback on the idea that the X-Men are separate from Krakoa or in any way an offshoot. Like when we say Devil's Reign X-Men and then we put Emma Frost in it, what we're really saying is like these people will always be X-Men and they will always be tied to whatever is, especially now, whatever is one mutant's business is kind of everybody's business at this point. Emma goes to London (laughs) wearing Kitty Pride's outfit, which I thought was a hilarious touch and promptly gets arrested. Oh, Union Jack. (laughs) I love that we have both uh, US Agent and Union Jack being total jerks. Obviously, you can't have Emma Frost without a plastic surgery reference at some point, but it literally seemed like that was the joke set up and punchline where like my first thought was like I feel like she would have been diamond point two seconds after oh he my started gosh, swinging yes. and he should have broken his hand and somehow gotten the best of her some other way <laughs> right agreed like that that whatever it was the canister that he threw at her if that could have negated her diamond form or something I don't sure. know so we're obviously moving towards this trial where the final secrets of what happened and who this girl is and why it's all important are going to come to the forefront and I guess as I take stock of what we've seen before and what we're expecting to come ahead, I'm left wondering, what are the stakes in this? Fisk is dealing with threats on all sides. He's got Matt Murdock and Elektra coming after him. 
personally. He's got Luke Cage running for mayor against him. Otto Octavius is being real superior right now. He's got a lot on his plate. And with this as a tie-in, I'm wondering what weight it can hold and what it can do to contribute to the event as a whole. Hey everybody, Nico here again. Now real quick, before I talk about this week's Life of Wolverine, or I guess Life of Wolverines, or is it Life's? I'm not sure. But before we get to that, I just want to mention that as of today, March 9th, Contest of Champions, the Marvel mobile game, is actually going to see the inclusion of Betsy Braddock as Captain Britain, as well as Omega Sentinel to the game. Now people might not realize just how many X-Men characters are in there, and I'm not saying this because like, oh man, check out this game and play with, just like, people will not realize how many X-Men characters are available for play in like a quick, easy, fun, kind of mindless mobile game. You've got multiple versions of Storm and Cyclops as well as Phoenix, Iceman, Archangel, Beast, Juggernaut. You've got a bunch of Wolverines including Old Man Logan, X-23, a really hard to get Weapon X. There's Sabretooth, tons of Deadpools as well as Gwenpool, Colossus, Nightcrawler, Gambit, Rogue. There's actually also Unstoppable Juggernaut Colossus which is crazy. You can get Cable, Strife, Domino, Bishop, Kitty, Nimrod, Toad, Sauron. Like I said, there's Betsy as Cap but there's also Captain Britain and Betsy Braddock available. You can be a couple of different Magnetos. There's Magic, Omega Red, Longshot, and Mojo. Sunspot, a really cool looking Sienkiewicz style warlock that retains a lot of that visual style that we all love so much from that title. As well as some really cool Alpha Flight references like Sasquatch and Guardian who, you know, Guardian is going to come up today in our coverage of Life of Wolverine. I'm a big fan of the general idea of Alpha Flight as a team and I really hope that Marvel is able to get an alpha flight off the ground that really as our contributor who is from Canada Drew has said you know fits the needs and the cultural landscape of Canada at this point there's also in the last couple of months been the inclusion to the game of Professor X and Apocalypse as well as Jubilee now the Professor X and Apocalypse they're both actually House of X era right and there's a really cool danger room with a Krakoa background there's some cool maps you can play through that are very X-Men related anyway it's just really cool if you're looking for more X-Men stuff to do with your phone you could play this game and there's a bunch of x characters but on to the comics themselves i'm here today to talk about life of wolverine number six and number seven now life of wolverine number six is maybe the first time i feel like the incredible team of jim zub ramon box harva tartaglia and vcs joe sabino are in a position where they kind of just have to list stuff that's happened to wolverine Now, it's not as though I feel it becomes exclusively an expository situation, but there is so much of Logan's backstory at this point that was shown primarily in very minimalized flashbacks and cut-tos that painted the bigger picture. Of course, something that I do notice is there is yet again a reference to the situation with Bucky Barnes. Of course, that is because it's in the canon, right? There is a reference to Bucky there no matter what you do, so... It is of note that that is a part of Logan's history that's being pushed somewhat aggressively. Beyond that, we get to a reference about Romulus again, as well as Dokken. Now, one of the things about Akihiro that is so interesting is people might not realize exactly the narrative that Akihiro's story has followed. Something that paints a really interesting time map for me is Dokken came into picture just after House of M. Through the course of House of M, Wolverine regained a number of his memories, and when we came out of House of M, we were in the origins and 
Beginnings arc by Daniel Way, which would ultimately launch out of Wolverine's solo title and over into the pages of its own story, Wolverine Origins. Now, in the pages of Wolverine Origins 5, 6, and 8, we got early bits of Dokken before issues 10 through 15 really explored the character much more in depth. Now, when Dokken was first created, he had a lot of angry bisexual son energy, a lot of I'm here to show dad who's the big man now, and that was very much a product of its time. The following event that would occur for Dokken is Dark Avengers, and Dark Avengers is such an interesting time in Marvel. I myself find situations like this interesting because there's a sort of dichotomy, a duality to how these things need to be approached. In many ways, villains culture can often make allowances for certain behaviors that were not normalized previously to become normalized throughout the course of reading it. But one of the things that I feel that by transforming the Thunderbolts into the Dark Avengers, the teams were able to do was they were able to never point to these behaviors and say they were positive things. But of course, that did mean that shortly after his initial appearance, within 10 issues of his creation, Dokken was operating as Dark Wolverine on a Marvel Universe scale, appearing in the pages of Dark Avengers. From there, he would go on to take over the title of Wolverine Origins from numbers 24 to 50. This would see events like the original Sin event, including Mike Carey's legacy tie-in, and it was a very dynamic time because we went from Dokken didn't exist to Dokken, this background figure, to Dokken as a major player throughout the Marvel Universe before we really knew who this character was. A lot of the stories that Dokken would find himself in throughout the course of Dark Wolverine, which his title would be eventually renamed after the Wolverine Origin series came to its end, Wolverine became Dark Wolverine somewhere in the 80s, I think issue 81, and Wolverine got a new title. So <laughs> Dokken took over Dark Wolverine, which saw some really interesting stories. You know, whether or not you're a big fan of Frankencastle, it's definitely a moment that exists in time. And Dokken Dokken definitely took down the Punisher in the sewers, and the Punisher was then turned into Frankencastle. It led to a lot of really interesting Legion of Monster resurgence and a lot of Bloodstone stuff. So whether you're a big fan of the story or not, it does play a pivotal role in sort of the reshaping of the Marvel Universe at that point. From there, the Wolverine line became sort of the Wolverine family line, and we saw the introduction of X-23, as well as Dokken getting his own title. Now, she is Wolverine now. But at this time, the title was still known as X-23 because she had not yet gotten her proper name. The two of them would have a crossover in that run. Unfortunately, that era didn't take off maybe the way I had hoped. You know, Marjorie Liu did a phenomenal job with Laura and Daniel Wei was continuing the Dark Wolverine narrative he had begun earlier. There came kind of a weird point for Dokken where he didn't really have a home book. He would make appearances in titles like Uncanny X-Force and Runaways. But there was sort of a sense of loss on the character for a bit there until Death of Wolverine, which really reset the board for everybody Wolverine adjacent that wasn't really Wolverine. This was an opportunity for Dokken to thrive, and Dokken took a much larger role in the weekly event structure title Wolverines. It's interesting to talk about Wolverines because it was the last time that Wolverine really tried to do a weekly thing like we're seeing now. Admittedly, one of the casualties of 
the world reality we live in where, you know, we have to really put safety first is sometimes timed events and printing delays and paper delays. They're going to throw things off the schedule, right? So it's always dicey when you have a multi-week event hinging on no mess ups with the schedule, right? And Wolverines was definitely an interesting attempt to see that through. We saw 20 issues of that title before all new Wolverine featuring Laura in her, of course, you know, best role definitely took front and stage. And while Dokken did make appearances in that for a really strong period of time, he was appearing in titles like Iceman and X-Men Blue before Hunt for Wolverine and Return of Wolverine really put the characters back in what we might consider sort of the standard of Marvel stasis. Obviously, since then, Akihiro has gone on to become a major player in the world of X-Factor, a title that really lives in queer counterculture X-Hearts forever. So seeing the sort of drop in minimalist reference to him here, it's so interesting because at this point, Dokken really doesn't have quite as much canon as you would think. He has less than 300 appearances throughout the Marvel Universe since his introduction in 2006. So his introduction here in Life of Wolverine being his foster parents named him Akihiro, but in time he would call himself Dokken after many tragedies of his own. He is trained to kill and set on a path of revenge against the father he'd never met. But at this time, you know none of this. It's such a fascinating way to confront us with the things that have been layered into Wolverine's past over and over again. The story then cuts to when you encounter Muramasa, and I love the Muramasa sword stuff. I was a big fan of it when it came up during Ten of Swords. I think Wolverine as a magical character with magical swords is a really cool thing. I think it really fits the motif of the character as long as we can manage to make sure that Logan isn't culturally appropriating, but rather operating within an appropriate way for his character. And I really loved seeing the contextualization of time because I myself admittedly could not have put all of this quite in order. Of course, we see Creed come into play and that makes a lot of sense because Creed is such a defining expected part of Logan's story he's going to keep coming back up through their eternal battle and so it's almost funny that we didn't see more Romulus when that's like such a big thing (laughs) to bring up in that eternal back and forth battle but what does get referenced shortly thereafter is an issue I really had not expected to see brought up in the pages of Life of Wolverine Web of Venom Venom by Donnie Kate, Juanan Ramirez, Felipe Sobrero, and VCs Clayton Cowles comes into play. And this was a one shot that was released sort of during the age of everything at Marvel has to be real, real Venomy. And I had read it when I was trying to do a really complete read on King and Black. For those who might not realize, King and Black actually has some of its more unusual origins in the pages of Thor. As a huge Thor fan, I very much enjoy the villain Null as a counterpoint to Thor's eternal desire to bring light to worlds. And Null first appears in form in the pages of Thor, God of Thunder. And so it's sort of a big narrative I was trying to trace and see if, you know, the Venom stuff and the Thor stuff intersected. Note, it really doesn't. So I read this issue a while back and I probably hadn't thought of it. And you know what? I maybe hadn't thought of this issue in the same way I hadn't thought of another one-shot that Marvel had delivered just before this. In 2018, Marvel had sent Nick Fury and a team of Howling Commandos 
through A Journey into Mystery, The Birth of Krakoa, written by Dennis Hopeless, with art by Jabril Morissette Fan, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg, and letters by VC's Travis Lanham. And this issue was a fascinating throwback piece to sort of like, you know, 50s war comics at Marvel. We see a classic Fury, Howling Commandos, Dugan story as they travel to the monster island of Krakoa and face off against a Krakoa that can like possess people and turn them into horrifying beings. It's a really different take on Krakoa than you might be expecting. And so for it to have come out in 2018, I just kind of put it out of my mind. And to be honest, in that same capacity, I had put this Web of Venom story out of my mind. There are some great moments of classic interplay between Nick and Logan, which I appreciate. There's a very strong sense of war comic, which fits in with the era that they're referencing here. I think I found myself a little surprised that in trying to paint what I thought was going to be a really clear picture of Logan throughout his time, it maybe seems a little bit more like we're seeing all of the ways that you might not realize that Logan is intersecting with all of canon. So... You know, with the Bucky thing and this, it definitely does start to feel like there's a lot of Marvel reading lists that can be pulled from this story. I don't feel like anything was like an unnecessary inclusion for certain, but there is a level of deep cut that this Venom story really is, especially because one of the things that Web of Venom sought to do was illustrate Venom stories without having to kind of clonk you over the head with Eddie Brock. One of the first things that you see in the introduction for the book is until recently, Eddie believed his symbiote to be the first to arrive on Earth. However, the discovery of an ancient symbiote known as the Grendel and former host Rex Strickland, a Vietnam veteran, turned that belief on its head. So we get the dragon that would go on to become dragons. It would fill the pages of King in Black. We see Rex Strickland, codenamed Tyrannosaurus here, And when the team goes in to this sort of war comic scenario, one of the things that my eyes are keenly trained on is how do they handle the fact that this is a depiction of a real war and real lives were really lost here. And I was really happy to see that here Donny Cates sought to avoid any interaction with the Vietnamese people in this story. This is an in-and-out mission for Logan, and ultimately it has some classic Nick Fury surprises. For instance, it turns out it was an LMD all along, so... Nick is safely at home, whereas Logan's out in the field. And the issue ends with the team returning home and Rex being offered a job at S.H.I.E.L.D. by Nick Fury. And it plays into the bigger picture of Logan has been a part of the Marvel Universe sort of everywhere you look. Now, when I think about the way this plays out with Life of Wolverine, I do find myself immediately more focused on the return to Team X. One of the things that I think that Team X has been instrumental for in these stories is reminding us of the era of Logan that did involve Sabretooth, of reminding us of the time where he wasn't the world's nicest guy. So it definitely strikes my attention here that we get Team X directly into Omega Red. So much of what Ben Percy's run has been about. From there, issue number seven, Fight or Flight is a quick blast through Weapon X directly into Alpha Flight. I think for the first time I felt that this issue was hyper short. 
This one sort of flew by in a moment, and I don't think that that's necessarily reflective of the story being light or the story being weak. No, I think that might be more reflective of the fact that that time in Logan's life has been in great detail laid out for us multiple times. I've so enjoyed my journey through the life of Wolverine, and I've enjoyed covering it so much with you guys, and I can't wait for X-Lives and X-Deaths to resume their regular shipping. As of today, we will be getting two issues, X-Lives and X-Deaths number four, respectively. So the series is back on track to resume its initial weekly end date with the end of issues five. But up next is X-Men number nine, another issue by Jerry Dugan, and of course, an incredibly talented cast of artists. And it seems to be a very powerful moment of setup for the future of the Krakoan nation and the state of X-Men as a line. And we hope you guys enjoy. As always, we love making the show for you three times a week, every week, Magic Mondays, X-Men, X-Wednesdays, and Marvel Fanfare Fridays. So don't forget to check us out all three times. You can always check the episode image as well as the description for what time, what books are being covered. I've been Nico. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Until next time, enjoy this last segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember, Dokken hasn't been around as long as you might think, and we'll see you next time. Hey everyone, welcome back to another segment of X's for Podcast, a show where we cover Marvel's mutants, magic, and intergalactic bar fights. I'm your host, Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And hey guys, I'm Jake. You can find me nefariously plotting with Nimrod over at, at Omega Sentinel, OH Mega Sentinel on Twitter. And I'm TK. You can find me trading barbs with my mother in law on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. I'm Kyle. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D R A N T I S 82. And I'm Nico. And you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action, trying to figure out exactly what the fuck the cast of this book is. And we hope you guys survive the experience because my understanding of this cast list is no is 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 muy muerto very dead <laughs> and that must mean we're covering x-men number nine written by jerry dugan art by cf villa colors by Marte gracia and letters by vcs clayton cowles now this book feels very much like an episode of modern family where we have an a plot b plot and c plot or any other sitcom that hosts a very large cast of characters because there is so much going on on trying to set up a lot of what the X-Men are dealing with right now. Not only are we dealing with the threat of Orcus, who's actively antagonizing the mutants, we also have this intergalactic game room show thingy that's like placing bets on, how can we destroy the Earth? And the X-Men are like, can we not do that? And they're like, but shh, you don't know about us. So I would love to get everybody's feelings of, a lot of what's being set up here is this war between this specific sect of humans versus the mutants, as well as this intergalactic game show that's trying to destroy the Earth that the X-Men are seemingly the only people who have noticed. You know, I think this felt more like the setup for an event than any issue in recent memory, and I'm including issues that were literally called the prelude to the event, because this was really like, number one, I thought that X-Men was the book that wasn't the Quiet Council. Like, that for me, first thing about this vote being in 
in this book with Storm, who didn't make this team? What the fuck was any of this doing in this book? It's almost like because Inferno is over and now X-Deaths is doing X-damn weird things that I love so much. You know, see our coverage of X-Deaths number three, my book for 2020 of the year so far. I just, I don't know. What were they doing voting in this book? It feels to me that they ended a couple books a little too early and had to find a place to stick their storylines into. That was you knocking it out of the park. Sorry. (laughs) When did we get a soundboard? I've been working in the background on shit. Leave me alone, okay? I actually thought that was the knocking it out of the park noise. I thought I'd hit home run, but ballpark and home run sit right next to each other in my dash, and I hit the wrong thing. I just tried to uh, stuff everything into this one book, and it just feels just like the waters are muddied here. My counterpoint is that, you know, this particular issue, I think more than a lot of what's been running since Hoxpox has felt to me like a like a plotting-wise return to like a classic Claremont arc. That way that he had of laying down lots of seeds in this long-term kind of growth situation. You know, there are a lot of plots that are, there are a lot of threads being picked up on here and developed. Um, you know, we're in this interregnum right now between, you know, eras of Krakoa. And it's really interesting to see and be reminded of what some of these ongoing, these ongoing loose, loose threads uh, still are and, and how they're being addressed. You know, I can see how some of what's going on here is going to lead into X-Men Red, how some of what's going on here could lead into Knights of X. And to me, it really feels like a return to this kind of long form writing style for X-Men that we haven't gotten in a really, really really long time. So I definitely agree with you, Jake. This was a book that would have worked for me. There's a lot of it that I liked. The problem is that X-Men, for me, has not been getting some of the stuff done that I needed it to get done in the previous, especially the first six issues. We've been lacking character presence from the central core X-Men team and explanations of what the relationships are, what's going on, what this team is going to be you know we are getting an idea throughout the marvel universe that this is really the flagship team that you send out to cross over into other storylines but then even that's muddied because they're not the ones really in devil's reign they show up briefly but it's not really about them so the the problem of having a flagship x-men team and not really knowing what they're about by issue nine is one that has made this at times a book that's tough to connect with that aside everything that's in here is good and cool and the type of stuff I do want to see. I love having a quiet council moment where, I mean, we're going to talk for a while about the bar fight. Fantastic scene. But having it in this book at this time was difficult for me to swallow given what we haven't gotten out of the core cast. And speaking of the core cast, I mean, yeah, we haven't really gotten a lot of connection between them. And over the last two, maybe three books, it's become apparent that they don't really want to be in this position. You've got Shiro wanting to head off into space. You've got Rogue wanting to spend time with Gambit. You've got... Sink just wants to leave. Sink just wants to leave. Why did these people think that they were the best choice? for this team if none of them want to be there and that might be the plot 
yeah and that's kind of that's the thing for me it's the plot it like this only exists because of the vote and now we're done with the vote and we're on to the next vote so now this vote era is done so we can close out that because i actually i agree with every word that's been said for nine minutes because like yeah you know what jake you're so right this is like that classic return to the claremont 25 25 every 25 issues he kind of switches up the story and every 50 he goes back to where he started and it's a really beautiful cyclical nature and there was about community of idea and we're seeing that here but like i was just told this was not that book and if you promise me this amazing carbonated orange beverage that is so good it's the best fucking orange soda you've ever had it's orange cristal uh but with carbonation i guess and then you drink it and it's just orange juice but it's the best orange juice you've ever had right even if this was the best orange juice i've ever had i wanted the carbonation because that's what i was told was in this well what's the i guess i guess one of the things that i throughout this run have kind of had as a question mark is what is the real audience expectation of this as an x book you know is it that it's going to be about this you know core cast of elected members is it going to be about what does it mean what does x-men mean when the mutant nation has formed i i like that it has gone back and forth you know doing these tight character focus issues doing these broader questions of like what does it mean to be a superhero team for a superpowered nation i agree that there does seem to be a bit of an identity crisis insofar as like it's not really clear like where this particular book is going because it seems to be aiding all of these other stories but i guess i mean would this have just been better titled x-men unlimited it would have been better if there was something like X-Men Unlimited. Yes. Like I, what I thought we were going to move away from, I loved Hickman's X-Men. It was great. The anthology nature left something lacking in that we did not have a flagship X-Men team being out in the world doing standard X-Men stuff. And sometimes, you know, you say, but there've been so many of those. Do we really need another one? When the entire mutant thing, when the, the, the entire era is different and there's so much different stuff happening seeing how a flagship team functions in that to me was really important so when we decided we're moving into the Duggan era that's what it really seemed like we were getting we have this vote that puts a flagship team on a pedestal front and center they have to explain why they want to be the flagship X-Men it's really looking like we're going to see some awesome the X-Men doing what the X-Men do but in the age of Krakoa stories and we have not gotten that what we've gotten has a lot of really good interesting stories in it but we're still lacking that flagship x-men story and that is what i thought i was buying into that's the carbonated beverage i thought i was getting so something that i find maybe just off and not at what i was expecting is when i go into the x-men and i I said this before but the x-men i feel like did there have been the most entertaining to me as a comic form when it was a soap opera about superheroes and if you look back at a lot of classic or really cornerstone stories that were told through the X-Men a lot of them were so over the top over dramatic that you would find in these like soap opera plots it's like oh somebody has a secret brother and someone's father came back and this is all about Scott and oh this person died but secretly they were cloned and then now that guy is getting with that person's clone still about Scott and everybody always thinks his eyeballs are hot but they're not no they're concussive dad but (sighs) a lot of what I found so entertaining was that they were so dramatic and it was so over the top that it is personally entertaining to see how these characters deal with this much strife and drama because it's fairly entertaining
any, especially when you're throwing superheroes and supervillains on top of that. The run around people running around in spandex shooting people will also be sad about because their dad abandoned them to go be a space pirate. That's pretty entertaining and fun. But a lot of this current run feels like it's missing a lot of the interpersonal relationships that a lot of what the X-Men is, I felt like, is built off of, where we see how these characters all interact with one another. We kind of got a, some really good moments from certain characters, but it feels like it's not where the narrative is focusing. It's more shifting to a much larger, broader picture kind of thing. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't feel distinctly X-Men. I, like, uh, as we've been talking about, why do these X-Men feel like, it feels like we've only had such a short amount of time with these X-Men and now they're just going to be gone. None of them want to be on this team anymore. And it feels like I skipped so much of why they don't want to be on this team anymore. I feel like I'm missing too many details of wh- why what happened. It feels like you didn't get to do anything. It, that is even a really interesting plot. Like the idea that you get together a flag flagship X-Men team and they don't actually want to be there. The problem is the way it has come about, we don't have the investment in, oh man, we just saw 12 issues of these guys absolutely killing it as an X-Men team and seeing their awesome dynamic and seeing these really cool, like solid stories about them. But it is now revealed they don't actually want to be there. That came up right from the beginning amongst a bunch of stories that were kind of muddled into what they had to do with a flagship X-Men team that moves off of Krakoa to specifically be the X-Men again. Like you can't sell us a deconstruction until you've given us a construction and that's what's missing here. We don't have this team as a unit to break them down yet. Right. Okay, now I like this book a lot more knowing what I feel like I'm missing instead of a general sense of something's missing. Now I like this book a lot more. Well, and it felt like there were a lot of, uh, or there were a few early stories that were meant to showcase like the X-Men, you know, they step in the fight. They are defenders of New York. They're defenders of humanity. Like, you know, is there an annihilation wave coming? The X-Men will step in and take that on and take that down. I see a lot of the action, but I don't see a lot of the interiority. And that would be like a little more of the sort of emotional storytelling would be helpful, I think. We're getting a lot of structure with very little feelings behind it. I'm with you. Billions yeah, yeah. There's and, and you know, classic X-Men readers, we can we can fill in subtext, you know, till the day is long, but it's nice to have some on the page growth that, you know, we're meant to read as as canon text. You know, I can come up with a dozen reasons why Sync isn't interested in being on the X-Men anymore, but I want to have a better, more crystallized understanding of where his head is at and why he wants to step away. I want to talk about Arako next and their role in everything. I will be honest, I wasn't expecting Arako to play a role in anything. They've kind of been pretty self-isolated in their own intergalactic planet of formerly Mars. So I was fascinated to see them having to take a vote and stance of what are they going to do? Because I will be honest, I don't think the mutants can lose if Arako joins them. That's just convincing Arako to join them. But I would love to know everybody's reaction to this secret war that's brewing. I mean, just as we talked about how some books might have ended too soon before they could get everything in that they needed to, and so their storylines are coming up here, this is really a prequel to X-Men Red. You know, this is a story that might have been better served there only insofar as we really need this X-Men book to be doing X-Men things, so taking a break from that to do Arako things is a weird choice. Great story. I I do also sort of wonder if as far as Arako goes, it's a little bit of treading water to get into a debate about whether or not they will go back to war or you know 
what they're going to do. It kind of seemed like we had covered those bases and sort of using this time to hit the ground running a little more with going in a new direction for them might have made sense to me. That said, the storm of it all is what really, really makes it work because it is a story about her, you know, seeing her in in that boss role completely undeterred from getting what she wants and starting to make those really solid connections with not just Araco and leadership, but with the island itself. And I'm excited about this Red Root mission because, you know, it's X-Men, it's X-Men Red, it's Knights of X. There's a lot of possible directions that that can go in. And one of the things that's so significant about having this be the pivotal book for me is, you know, I find the use of Marvel's, and it's all Jonah's fault. Jonah, you said Secret War, and now ha. I just want to throw rocks because, like, I Marvel men, Marvel loves their, like, six or seven same words. And one of the things that we've really gotten into, I even did a whole segment on the reality of I did not realize that an infinite comic as a digital comic based on a different movement structure was different different than an infinity comic which is a digital comic based on an unusual movement structure and you know that's how you have 10 things called secret wars and i feel as though because there is such a muddled use of the term x-men unlimited at the moment and hickman's x-men kind of was what we thought of as x-men unlimited and currently what's running is sort of like you know kind of like the miniseries du jour of the week it feels like there does need to be a book that is centrally moving things forward Forward. And if it's going to be Dugan's X-Men, I'm here. If it's going to be Immortal X-Men, I'm there. Just tell me where I need to expect that story because our biggest complaint about this book since day one has been for a book that's supposed to be about the unification of the mutant machine and multiple X-Men coming together to form a singular unit, they really don't do that a whole lot. And the same three or four people are always important or they're completely missing. And I'm just starting to get like castless whiplash and could use a little bit either more standard or just say there is no standard. Just like throw it out and say this is the setup book. Because then I'm in. I like the setup book. But like, I don't know what's happening. I thought Ben Uric was going to keep appearing. It really does feel like we're getting some storytelling off of the main column through this book. The X-Men Megazord from that first, what is the first issue or two, is not coming back and it has nothing to do with what's going on in the main Krakoa. Uh, that fight with Nightmare is not coming back and has nothing to do with what's happening in Krakoa. The, the game world stuff might, I guess, is coming back, but we're not sure if it's going to if it's gonna get into what's happening in Krakoa. This feels like it's all kind of happening in its own corner, but for this Araco and and. Fo- tie-in. I was curious about whether or not anyone else felt like the Araco, Krakoa, and Phobos leadership structures were all gesturing to that one sinister, bar sinister secret of like there being three great rings in the solar system. You know, bar sinister secrets have not come up in such a long time that like I don't even remember which ones that we knew were true, which we knew were coming up, and which ones we were like, oh, we have no idea what the hell this refers to. So... <laughs> That's great. That's really fascinating that that was seeded for so long. I just don't know. Maybe I would love like a different, like like a different structure, like because it all feels a lot of the same. I get it for the same being for Krakoa and Rocco. That makes sense. But I would have loved maybe like a completely different structure for Orcus because that would make, help bridge that dichotomy of like their the polar opposites of mutants. We see Sunfire here, who's been chilling on Araco and his own little palace, and he's like, I didn't want to fight anybody, but they're down there. I guess I'm the guy with the helm now. And him talking about wanting to reach the upper limits of his power to see what he can do. I don't mind this story for him. I wish it was just more seen. 
so something that currently is going on with Mr. Bobby Iceman Drake is that he's pushed the upper limits of his powers after certain events because this is how his this is his coping mechanism is how strong can he be? What is what can Iceman do? And how far can we really push that? And it's something similar that I see Sunfire going through and that's great and that's fine but when you have Sunfire be absent for so long all this characterization feels like it's coming out of nowhere. Why is he feeling like he wants to push his powers? What like does he not want to be in the X-Men anymore? Like you have this character that I was excited for and this you know personally I was excited for seeing because he was a character we haven't seen in a while. He kind of does get dropped off a little and I really wanted his character to be brought to the forefront and updated for the modern comic reader but like it feels like he got placed way back into the back burner no pun intended and I'm missing the characterization of why he wants to go out solo and push and explore like I I think I need a little bit I needed more for understanding where Sunfire is supposed to be going in this modern age yeah I definitely agree there definitely feels like he's been in the background of the previous eight issues and having him show up now and say I I want to push myself by leaving the team yeah it's it's weird I wish that we had gotten just a little bit more time with him maybe dealing with the Rockies just because the whole point of being an, on a Rocco is to show your strength that's, that's their whole co- culture so why are we seeing the after effects of that why aren't we actually seeing him deal with what's going on with that culture with being on that planet you know as a show Bodhi alpha i love a show Bodhi alpha you know that's a thing i think is real cute i don't know why i'm so annoyed by it on iceman and yet at the same time i'm like annoyed by the opposite of it on sunfire like there's i don't know maybe there's something wrong with me but like i feel as though dugan is writing quite literally hot and cold as opposites of themselves on their exploration of power like Iceman is suddenly like yeah I'm a motherfucker hear me roar I'm so cold it burns I'm so powerful and then you've got Sunfire who's like I have for many years you know been rage and fire incarnate and now I'm going to be powerful but calm and I'm like it's sort of the same story but kind of opposite ends because of their opposite power spectrum and Kyle I hadn't even thought of your point in that regard but yeah I really agree with you because the whole thing was when she was in Sword, Storm was like, oh my god, I am never done proving myself. As Raven would say, they make the black woman prove herself ten times harder in space. And so I feel like here, suddenly they're just like, oh no, now you're one of us. Now we're going to play the game, right? Oh, if that person's captured, we don't want them. Peace. I like, I don't know. I I loved it. But also, once again, I did not expect to see a Storm Araco sequence. On the one hand, I really do like this move where Sunfire is saying, I'm going to take this time to look inward and to discover what my my abilities are, to see what my upper limits are, to really come to understand myself. On the other hand, there's been no trajectory for that thought process. You know, we've gone from his speech at the X-Men election. I think his second big beat after that is the fight on Phobos. And then now we're here and and he's saying, you know, I'm, I'm kind of done with this group and I'm ready to figure out who I am. And so I like the growth, but again, as we've kind of pointed out, it just doesn't seem like it's trackable on the page. It's one of those things that like with the character history and with subtext, you can read onto it, but we need a little bit more, I think. It's not to say that you can't have characterization happen off panel, but when that happens, 
characters at least talk about it, and that's where you get the growth, where you don't actually have to show them doing something, but you can have them talk about it and the aftermath of it. And it feels like we're just not really getting that for these characters. How does everybody else feel about Sunfire not being there? Are they just fine with it? Are the other characters angry? So I, I am a little bummed. Hopefully we get to see more Sunfire somewhere, you know, whether it's in X-Men Red, whether it's in some space book, whether he's, you know, gets a solo and he's just flying off in space and he sees Carol and he's like, hey girl, now I think to Rogue and Gambit trying to find out more information about this intergalactic game palace that's been making these bets on placing and putting Earth in peril and they meet with the two cutest characters in the entire world and I love that the monkey said, Rogue can stay. You can, you have to leave. I'm with you, monkey. I support you. Solidarity. Rogue and Gambit go to this intergalactic bar to try to find this information and Irene's already there having a drink. She's already sitting just prim and proper and something that's fun about Irene is that she doesn't have facial expressions when she has her mask on. So everything she says, no matter the emotion that's intended to be conveyed by it, you can't tell. And I find that a little bit funny. But I would love to know everybody's reactions to this scene, this conflict that we see between Rogue and Gambit versus Irene and Irene role in this moment. So I, this one made a little more sense for me despite being kind of a little bit of a spinoff of the main team because at least Rogue is there and the game world storyline has been a part of this. The fact that it is running parallel to all the Orcus stuff, it feels like maybe it's a lot but we don't know how it's all going to come together. So this one I definitely had a little bit more buy-in for from the start. I have been waiting for this interaction for Rogue and Destiny and you know of course Gambit as well. The fact that there is some implied backstory wherein Rogue has clearly already seen Irene and they've had some kind of moment after her resurrection. We know from what Hickman has said that that was intended to be part of Inferno that had to be cut. It's an unfortunate thing that this is the first time that we're seeing them on page together in such a long time because the emotional resonance of Rogue having her mother return to her is a little bit lost. On the other hand, this is a great interaction between them and more in line with how we would expect things to be when, you know, they've gotten over the fact that she's resurrected, that Rogue has her mom back and remembers that, oh, she's very morally ambiguous. It was a really fun scene. Everybody really hit their character beats. I, personal preference, don't love the idea that she hates Gambit so much. You know, we've already done Mystique's weird sexual testing of Gambit to prove that he's a worthy... Okay, I hear that, oh my god, and I raise you, I would buy a Marvel Legends Fox figure in, like, (laughs) fucking negative time space. Listen, I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm saying it's a bad idea to have sex with a teenager or to pretend to be one to get Gambit to fall off the path. That said, Mystique has decided that Gambit's okay for Rogue. So to go back to this beat of, like, Gambit's a scoundrel, he hasn't proven himself, Rogue is so much better than him. It's funny. It leads to two of my favorite panels of 2022, but the beat in and of itself, I could take early. I just always kind of assumed she'd be more refined 
refined than she's been. She just seems really beneath the sort of, I, I guess, caliber of person I thought she was. She just seems really interested in venomously jabbing people, like yeah. she has nothing better to do with her time. And if that is really who she is, then this is just not the journey I wanted for the character. And I'm so happy for everybody that loves this very playful, jabby character, because that's a really cool archetype and it's really popular. And I really understand people liking it. But my destiny is refined, not a snarking at everybody. I love the hate you moment, but it reads like it should be from a comedy issue of something. For me, it's it's kind of reading like Destiny is dealing with frustration after seeing all of her influencing the future through her precog abilities going off the rails and she's trying to put everything back into place and people aren't really willing to do that at this point because of how long she's been gone. Everybody has their own lives where she hasn't really had that kind of influence. Yeah. I mean, I like this kind of Maggie Smith-esque or like, I guess, Lady Grantham-esque version of Destiny that we're getting in part because, you know, the Destiny that we got in the 70s and 80s was very serious and was very grim and, you know, the future is, it seems like it's much more open in ways that it wasn't when she was operating in her first life. I like that there's a loss of control for her. Part of her way of dealing with it is to just be nasty because that's a very real reaction, you know, lashing out at the people you don't like, lashing out at the people you do like. Oh, you wanted Destiny? This is who Destiny is, not this statue that you thought of. Destiny talking to Rogue as if Rogue was going to immediately drop everything to go run to her and Mystique, as if years upon years of history hasn't happened between them. That Destiny is ready to just kind of pick up where she left off, as opposed to understanding, like, a lot of shit went down. A, a lot of things have happened. Some things you maybe didn't or didn't see with your power, but, like, maybe you gotta adjust a little bit, just a little bit of leeway. The main thing I want to see is some sort of character cohesion. If you're telling me that there's already going to be another character added to this already very packed book. I find myself wondering if they said to Dugan tow the company line for six to eight issues and then you can do your thing. And that's why we see these tie-ins to Devil's Reign which feels very self-contained. You know it feels very like that plus Devil's Reign X-Men plus one or two issues of Marauders makes the X-Men Devil's Reign hardcover and you can just sort of ship it off and call it you know a Ben Eric special edition. So I think I I really just want to see the overall idea of this group come together in a solid way. Don't keep cock-teasing me, you know, up oh, the team's together. Maybe they're not. And now like, oh, we're going to get a bonus person? Mm -mm. I need my party set if I'm heading into a final battle. Do not mess with my party, my equipment, my spells, anything if I'm going into a final battle. And that's what this feels like. We're heading into some kind of at least mini-boss and and if that's the case, all right, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready. X-Men me. X-Men me.